you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS in Pasadena for a morning of multilingual readings, interactive performances, and lots of kid fun. It's Super Fun Saturday on June 1st. Get your tickets at LAS.com slash events. The idea of doing of being happy doesn't mean that you would be 10 on the 1 to 10 scale, 24-7. That is not possible. That's not even a good life. This is Gretchen Rubin, best-selling author, podcaster, and a prominent voice on the subject of happiness. And yeah, happiness is a little tricky right now, given that we're in the middle of a global pandemic and a moment of racial reckoning in the United States. Obviously, there are times when it's appropriate to feel angry or resentful or bitter or agitated or fearful or uncertain or disappointed or guilty, ashamed, all these things. But the question is, given your circumstances and given the events of the world, are you as happy as you can be? From Elias Studios, this is Servant of Pod. I'm Nick Kwa. On this week's episode, Gretchen Rubin's Empire of Happiness. So let me show my cards here for a second. I'm a big consumer of self-help books. And I realize that as I say this, I feel pretty self-conscious about it. Self-help is a contentious area. And Gretchen Rubin would be the first to admit just how loaded that term is. But does she even think that what she does is self-help? I would say it's self-helpful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Tell me the distinction. I, I just feel like self-help, I, you know, I love self-help, but for a lot of people, it has very negative connotations, hmm. um, as your question suggests. You could also call this a reported memoir. I think this is a, this is hmm. a form that's really catching on. I, I have many friends who have written reported memoirs where you use your own story and your own experience as kind of the underlying structure and it gives it some kind of like narrative movement and some mm. suspense and it that interest that comes from one person's story. But then there's a lot of research and, and for some people actual reporting that goes into it uh, to, to widen it out and make it beyond one person's story. So it's sort of a combination of a memoir and reporting or research. Mine fall in that camp. Like I do yeah. a tremendous amount of research but I think it reads much more like, hey, this is one person's story. And I think that does make it more accessible or more interesting to some people. It's funny. When I hear a reported memoir, um, I think of David Carr's Night of the Gun. Yes, right. Well, he really reported on himself. Yeah. Yes. Because he was like, I don't remember because I was a drug addict. So I had to like actually go look things up. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So calling it a reported memoir, uh, do you think there's less baggage with that? Because there seems to be like a, a general distaste or, or criticism or like negativity towards self-help as a genre. Yeah, even though it's wildly popular. Yeah, even though it's wildly popular. Exactly. It's yeah. a little bit, I, I don't know, there's, yeah. there's like a lot of, you know, yeah. I, I, it, like pop music almost. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm personally a bit consumer of self-help stuff. <laughs> and like, Good. I kind of want to explore that a little bit. Why is there this sort of disparity between 
on the one hand, the sort of consumer popularity of it and the fact that it is like, you know, helpful for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot of uh, critical arguments that I think finds some genuine theoretical purchase in, in some areas. But like, sure. talk to me a little bit about that. Well, I think it's a very earnest form, and some people just don't like earnest. I remember when I wrote The Happiness Project, somebody said to me, like, earnest doesn't sell. You need to be ironic. And I'm like, (laughs) an ironic book about, like, this. no, that's just not going to work. And I'm like, I'm a very earnest person, too. So I think that's part of it. I think part of it is it's often kind of light or, you know, there's a lot of bad Mm. examples of it that are very striking and often very popular. So they're in your face. And also part of it is there's like, and and I'm very much caught in this, there's the astrology and there's the astronomy. Mm. So there's the astronomy of it, which I think people do take seriously. Then there's the astrology of it. And and many people are sort of somewhere along that continuum. And I think if you're more on the astronomy side of it, then you really sort of dismiss the astrology. Yeah. Even though sometimes those things really penetrate to people and can be quite significant to them. So I think it's kind of caught in that tension as well. Hmm. So so you're saying that's like this is a genre that's typically been defined, at least popularly, by its bad examples as opposed to its like good examples. At least by the people who are criticizing it, yes. You know, the thing about the things about like happiness is like all the big ideas have already been discovered. This is too big a subject. The greatest minds in human history have mm. thought about like how to be happy. So anything that's new or particularly flashy is probably kind of questionable too. So <laughs> I think sometimes like to kind of get heard in a noisy marketplace, people sort of push it too far. Gretchen argues that her work is less self-help and more about what makes people tick. And she uses her own internal compass as guidance. Gretchen went to law school because she didn't know what else to do. But while she clerked for the late Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, she found herself thinking about more than case law. On my lunch hour um, while I was clerking and I was like wandering around Capitol Hill and I just asked myself a rhetorical question. You know how you do the you sort of pose yourself these questions. And Mm -hmm. I said, well, what am I interested in that everyone else in the world is interested in? And I thought, well, power, money, fame, sex. And it was like, (laughs) power, money, fame, sex. And I immediately ran out and started doing all this massive research on what I consider to be like one giant subject, power, money, fame, sex. And I often get really preoccupied with subjects and will do tons and tons of research on them just for fun. But this sort of took over and I was just working on it all the time. And I finally realized this is the kind of thing a person would do to write a book about a subject. And I thought, well, maybe I could write that book. And I went hmm. out to a bookstore and got something called like How to Write and Sell Your Nonfiction Book Proposal. And I just followed the directions. So it wasn't hmm. so much a rejection of law as it was that I felt this immense pull, and not just toward writing, but right. to writing this particular book. She published Power, Money, Fame, Sex, A User's Guide in 2000, followed by two books on a couple of the most powerful men in the world, Winston Churchill and John F. Kennedy. Was that in your mind at the time, like, all right, I'm going to try to build out a publishing career here. I'm just going to come up with a bunch of different ideas. How, how did that sort of phase of your writing career play out? Well, you know, with each book that I write, it's almost like I become incredibly interested in a particular subject. So it's almost like I can't help but write that book. And that's something mm. that's not uncommon among writers. A lot of times you'll have sort of a blocking project where it's so important to do a particular project that yeah. you kind of can't help it. And it's funny because I think looking at all my books now, those books look sort of out of place. But to me, they fit extremely firmly within everything I've done because they're really examinations of human nature, which is really my subject. Mm. My subject is human nature. So those books were really about how can we understand human nature better by understanding these particular lives. 
And so in that era of your book writing, what did writing those books help you understand about human nature? And or what did you understand about power, fame, money, sex that you did before writing the book? Well, I think one of the things that I really grew to understand is that with strengths come weaknesses. And usually they're the same thing. Um, like Jack Kennedy's strengths were in many ways his weaknesses. Churchill's hmm. strengths were his weaknesses. His tremendous belligerence, his love of war served him so well at certain times of his life. But at other times, yeah. like he was highly criticized for it justly. And so it's sort of like when you look at someone, you say, well, this is a strength and a weakness. Yeah. So it's a question of like, how do you get the benefits of the strengths, but how do you understand the weaknesses that come from it? Like one of the things yeah. I understand about myself is like, I'm highly disciplined, but that also means that I can be rigid. So I have to learn how to, okay, how do I shake off the bad parts of rigidity, but then take advantage of the discipline that I love? So I think that's one thing that really came, I really saw playing out in both those lives over and over. Yeah. And and so that sort of exploration of human nature eventually would bring you to the concept of happiness, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. What was that? What was that trigger? Like why why were you sort of working on that idea? Well, I was finishing up my JFK book and I had and I was sort of waiting for it to come out. So I had sort of open space <laughs> in my head, which I don't often have. And I was in a city bus in the pouring rain and I looked out the window and I thought what do I want from life anyway, which I never asked myself. And I thought, well, I want to be happy. Uh, but I realized I never spent any time thinking about like, I, am I happy? What does it mean to yeah. be happy? Could I be happier? So I ran to the library the next day and checked out a giant stack of books about the science of happiness, the philosophy, you know, memoirs, anything to try to understand what is happiness. Can I be happier? And at first it was just something for me. I was just interested in it for my own life. Um, and I actually had the thought, like, I should do a happiness project. <laughs> so that was like how the idea struck me. Yeah. But then I just got deeper and deeper and deeper into it. And finally I thought, wow, this is such a big subject. It's so rich and interesting. Maybe this should be my next book. And then I've sort of been just expanding out from there ever since. And eventually, it would become her thing. More in a minute. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. <laughs> yeah, I think they're so smart. Just, what the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. Hello, and welcome to Happier, a podcast that gives you strategies and tips for how to build happier habits into your daily life. We discuss cutting-edge science, the wisdom of the ages, lessons from pop culture, and our own experiences. 
Gretchen's 2009 book, *The Happiness Project*, became a New York Times bestseller, and five years ago, she launched her podcast *Happier* with her sister Elizabeth Kraft. My sister and I, for years, had been saying we should have a radio show. So I was like, <laughs> "This is even better than a radio show." So I called her and I was like, "This could be a big public failure." I'm just telling you right now. Like, yeah. And she's like, "Sure, I'll do it. 100. That sounds great." We had Car Talk as our model.、Um, oh, really? We are, we are the Car Talk of happiness. Yes, that makes a ton of sense in hindsight. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, right. Because part of it is that it's information. There's tons of information, but delivered in this personal way and through this relationship、mm. of sisters, just like you know, click and clack. And when Gretchen says it's personal, she means it. She always tries out the advice she shares in her books and podcasts on herself before sharing it with her readers and listeners. You know, really, when I'm writing, I'm writing for myself. You know, they say research is me search, and so I'm always writing what I need to know. So I'm always kind of my own guinea pig, and I think that's a really important test because, look, you can give people tons of great advice、hmm. if you don't try to take it yourself. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and a lot of times I read stuff and I'm like, that sounds good on paper, but I don't know if you tested that out on very many people because I don't. That's not what I see playing out. Yeah, and I'm so fortunate that I, I am in constant contact with people, so I get. So many examples of people that I think then can enliven it because a lot of times when somebody tells you a principle, it's not that you disagree with it. You're just like, yeah, but what does that mean for me? And、hmm. then you hear, well, this is what one person did, or this is how it played out for somebody else. Then you can make it real in your own life. And、hmm. so,、um, so I'm really fortunate that like the world is my research assistant because I get so much kind of richness from、hmm. hearing. These ideas play out with far more people than I could ever actually talk to in one lifetime. The show started in 2015 and was produced at the now defunct production house Panoply. That's where I met Gretchen, and she was one of the few authors using podcasting as a platform to share published content. I was surprised that more people didn't do it. I mean, at、mm. that time, you had Elizabeth Gilbert's Magic Lessons, which was doing extremely well. It was a limited run series that was done specifically to promote the book Magic Lessons, and I thought it was a huge example of a success. And I was surprised that she stopped the podcast, given how successful it was.、Mm. But I remember like going to a presentation and being like, "Oh my gosh, every author is going to try to get in on this." But what you realize is that, well, first of all, a lot of people aren't interested in it, and second of all, like our content on Happier, which is very much tied to my written content. It really lends itself. Like、hmm. being a biographer of Winston Churchill, that wouldn't be as easy. Like we've had a, yeah, you know, this podcast has been going for five years. We've never missed a week. We're super、hmm. vain about that. We've never <laughs> repeated an episode. Like we've never done a favorites, greatest hits. We've never missed、yeah. an episode because this subject lends itself to the form. So there's、yeah. a great marriage between the content and the podcast. What people go to podcasts for. So I think. There's a lot of authors where that would have been harder to do, but then you look at someone、yeah. like Danny Shapiro and Family Secrets, and how her book Inheritance was very specifically her story. But then she sort of realized that there was such an appetite for this kind of story as she was traveling around the world doing her book tour that she thought this could be a great podcast, and it is a great podcast.、Yeah. So it's not about her book Inheritance, but it definitely comes out of her book Inheritance, and it's definitely tied to her how much she's recognized as a writer. I think. Yeah, well, it it seems like there's almost two、um, two emerging models here. One is a sort of、uh, author makes a nonfiction、yeah. investigative series or something、yeah. like that, you know, like what Malcolm Gladwell and Pushkin、yes. Industries is doing.、Uh, and then there's this other notion of、uh, community driven, personality driven. 
not a big fan of the word personal brand, but I feel like it's relevant to this discussion. I feel like that's the second model that's happening. I could say voice. I think voice, voice uh, sounds that, better than That's a fair, writers. that's a fair, a much better uh, edit. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> the <good> voice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's no, voice. No, because I, I run into that yeah. all the time. It's like people are like, <laughs> I, I don't want to have a brand. I'm like, but could you have a voice? Because we're all very comfortable with the idea of, yes, I have a voice. Yeah, uh, and in that situation, the product is yourself, basically. Mm-hmm. D- does that ever get exhausting? To me, it's really, really energizing. And again, I think it's the way that my content is always like, I'm always sort of test driving it against yeah. myself. I'm um, also, you know, having my sister as my co-host, Delicious Craft. I mean, my sister herself is a super accomplished writer. She's a TV writer and showrunner in Los Angeles. She's brilliant. I've called her my sister this age since we were like 12 years old. I'm five years older than she is. And it's funny because when we started, somebody said, well, you're going to have to really fight with your sister because people are really interested in conflict. And if there's no conflict... Yeah, who's giving you this advice? Oh, a lot of people. Like, one of the biggest things I had to do was figure out the bad advice and the good advice. So they were like, you have to have conflict. I was like, that's a problem because I have less conflict with my sister than literally anyone else in my life. But what we realize is we don't have conflict, but we have differences. We see things differently. We have different experiences. We have different challenges. And so we can talk about those differences so that people will often say, oh, I'm more of an Elizabeth than a Gretchen. Hmm. But then it also kind of gives us more things we can talk about because she's got different issues and different takes than I have. Hmm. And certainly different ideas. You know, she has so many great ideas. And, you know, Elizabeth now has her own show, Happier in Hollywood. Um, And you built something called The Onward Project. Yes. Could you tell me a little bit about that decision to build out, I guess we can call it a network, but, uh, you know, kind of like an imprint? Or it's it's kind of an imprint. Yeah, I guess that's the metaphor that's often used. Yeah. And so the idea is these are shows that are going to make your life better in one way or another. So there's everything from like Side Hustle School with Chris Gillibo that's basically about, you know, how to have a side hustle, which now more than ever... And then the latest edition is Kate Bowler's Everything Happens, and she is somebody who really talks about the very, really super challenging things. Her her memoir, Everything Happens, is about her getting, you know, having stage four cancer and sort of living with that. It's about how to make your life better in all these different ways. And one of the things I really hope to do is to invest more in it and to build it out much more. Um, mm. I haven't done that to the degree that I really want to do, really yeah. scale it up. Yeah, because I think there's a lot of possibility there. Tell me a little bit about sort of the thinking around that, like, um, because I think there's a, you know, I I feel like in the podcast industry right now, we kind of moved away from this model of thinking about things in terms of podcast networks. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of companies nowadays that kind of view themselves as publishers, they have multiple projects. But with something of like the Onward project, you're essentially building sort of a stable of individual people and individual writers and voices. Yeah. What is the on the one hand, opportunity here, but on the other hand, what is the responsibility over working with an author that you brought into this model? Well, I think one of the big key things is discovery, right? Like, I can't believe mm. we've talked this long and we haven't talked about discovery <laughs> because anytime you talk about podcasters, all they want to talk about is discovery because it's a huge issue. How do you help people discover stuff that they like? How do you get people to listen to podcasts? How do you help them find the content that's really going to grab yeah, you, them? Yeah, you're, I think, one of the few podcasters that's very public about trying to solve that problem on your own terms. Like, yes. you even built that Gift of Podcast website, right? Yes, giftofpodcast.com. <laughs> Podcasters, listeners, this is like, it's a two, you just, I'll email you this PDF and you can fill out like a gift certificate so you can put a ribbon around it, give it to somebody for their birthday or for a holiday. And you're like, I'm giving you the gift of podcasts. I'm giving you the gift of 20,000 hertz because I know you love music and you love sound. You'll love 20,000 hertz because it's free. Anybody who has a smartphone can listen to a podcast. 
finding a podcast that you love or discovering podcasts for the first time is like the most mind-blowing, exciting thing. So everybody go to giftofpodcast.com and we can grow the pie. Yes, I'm getting on my high horse. <laughs> grow the pie. No, it is, more it's like people a... listening to podcasts. Well, that's that's what they really appreciate about here. Like Let's you're, fight you're, for it. <laughs> you're, you're really, really giving back to the community in this way. Um, and I appreciate the earnestness of it. Like every time I try to phrase things in that way, I feel very self-conscious about it. <laughs> well, I, I, it, it helps all of us. It helps great content to get discovered, which it's harder. And you talk about this all the time in your newsletter and on, on, on Servant of Pod. Like as more and more people come into it, it's harder and harder for independents, unique voices, people who don't already have like a huge hook. Hmm. to get heard. But one way we can help is by shining a spotlight on things that we know other people would like. And if you, you know, maybe you've got a giant newsletter or maybe you just like give it to a friend. Believe me, every podcaster is like, tell a friend that would really help me out. I mean, how many people say that in their, in their closing, please be sure to subscribe, rate, review us and tell a friend <laughs> that really helps listeners find our show. Right. We've all this, said it. this might be a non sequitur question, but it's really not. Um, uh, and I'm, I'm just curious. Um, to what extent do you view your work either as an author or a podcaster? To what extent do you see it as a form of service? Well, I think it is a form of service in that what I hope is that I make it feel easy and possible and enticing for people to do the things that would make them happier, healthier, more productive, and more creative. And I think a lot of times there are things people could do that just haven't occurred to them. I mean, one of the things that the research shows is sometimes there's this idea that if people are happy, they just want to like drink margaritas by the beach all day long. But research shows that happier people are more interested in the problems of the world. They're more interested in the problems of the people around them. They're more likely to vote. They're more likely to donate money. They're more likely to volunteer their time. They make better hmm. leaders and better team members. They're more likely to help out if somebody needs a hand. And so I think that it's one way to try to help people have the energy and the wherewithal to turn outward. Hmm. If you feel like you're good, then you can turn outward and think about, well, how can I help other people? Okay, so what do you think is a way that we can help ourselves so we can help other people, given the state of the world right now? So we talk about power hour, which is when you set aside an hour every weekend to like do all the nagging tasks that you never, th things that can be done at any time or done at no time. So these, that's when you do like go to the hardware store for that weird light bulb or whatever. So a uh, listener proposed a wrinkle on that, which turned out people keep talking about, which is empower hour, which is when you take an hour every week and you think of something to do to put your values into the world. So people have done things like write their congressman or research organizations to donate money to that support causes that they believe in, reading books about, you know, policy that maybe you're not going to, you'd have to sort of set aside time to kind of study those books because they're not just your average read a chapter before bed every night type of book. So that's a way where we also try to show to listeners ideas for how to make ideas real. Yeah, you say you want to be an anti-racist. What does that look like for people? What are they actually doing? Maybe that'll give you an idea for your own life. Maybe you can actually make change real. Gretchen, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me. I really appreciate this. Oh, Nick, I always love to talk to you. Thank <laughs> you for having me. My pleasure. Servant a Pod is written and hosted by me, Nick Kwa. You can check out more episodes at elias.com slash servantofpod. The show is produced by Andrea Azwahe, Jessica Alpert, and John Prati at Rococo Punch. 
Web design by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at Southern California Public Radio. Logo and branding by Leo G. Thanks to the team at Alias Studios, including Christian Hayford, Taylor Kaufman, Kristen Muller, and Leo G. Servant a Pod is a production of Alias Studios. Alias has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com events.